When we lead trips here at St. Luke's, whether we are traveling to the Holy Land or going to Greece and Turkey following in the footsteps of Paul, or going to Germany and England for our Reformation trip, or looking ahead to next year when we go to Oberammergau for the Passion Play, we're very fortunate that we have enough people that it can be just a St. Luke's trip. In other words, we fill up a tour bus, uh, and it's made up of people who are connected to St. Luke's one way or another. Most churches aren't able to do that. What happens is most churches have smaller groups, and the tour company takes several of these smaller groups and fills up a tour bus, and then whoever has the largest group is kind of the lead group, and their leader is the one who speaks to the group as a whole. Well, my husband Chris and I made our first trip to the Holy Land with our church at the time, Elk City United Methodist, and we were fortunate that Elk City had enough people that went to the Holy Land that we filled up our tour bus. And it's a great way to connect with people in your church and get to know them better. But the second time we went to the Holy Land, there was just a small group of us. Chris and I were part of a group of six, and these are people that we knew really well, and uh, we loved each other. It was going to be a great trip. But because we were only six, the tour company put us on a bus with uh, groups representing at least four different churches. Now, by and large, the, the largest group on the bus uh, they took up the majority of the seats, and so they were the group. And their leader was the leader of the bus and spoke to the entire group. And this group had sort of a different personality and a way of traveling. For instance, here we were in the Holy Land, and we were visiting the sites of the Bible. We're standing at biblical sites and... Many in their group, not all, but some, didn't seem as interested in the biblical site as they did going to the stores around it. And so our guide would be talking and teaching the group, and many of that group would kind of wander off and go shopping. Now, nowadays, uh, the guides all have uh, microphones they speak into and the transmitters send it to everyone's personal receiver and headphones and so it's quite easy to hear. In that trip we didn't have those and so we were trying to stand close to him but he was constantly having to corral the shoppers and bring them back to the group. But the worst thing was that many in this group were really judgmental. Nothing seemed to be okay. On the occasions that you would go into a store that the storekeeper didn't speak English or didn't take U.S. dollars, they would be highly critical and make that known. Now keep in mind, there were the vast majority all did speak English. They all took U.S. dollars. There was maybe one or two that didn't, small shops, and boy, they ridiculed them. They didn't like the food because it wasn't American enough. Uh, they ridiculed our guide because one morning he suggested that maybe we get an earlier start to get to the, the popular sites. And so they grumbled and complained and 
forgot that he was mentioning that because they complained the day before about standing in line. They were judgmental about the different faith traditions in the Holy Land. And it wasn't all of the group, but it was enough that the entire bus could feel this tension. Have you ever traveled with people like that? that they don't like anything, nothing's good enough, and you kind of wonder why they left home, it becomes oppressive. Nothing's good enough, and it kind of weighs on you. We've mentioned Father Greg before. He started in 1988, the Homeboy Industries. It's just a six block, blocks away from the Skid Row area in Los Angeles. And now it's become the largest gang rehabilitation and reentry program in the world. They offer incredible programs there for gang members. They offer counseling, parenting classes. They offer treatment for substance abuse. They offer job training and tattoo removal, among many other things. In his ministry, Father Greg Boyle sees prejudice on a daily basis, not just between rival gang members, but also from the community at large who are judging the gang members. And they many times criticize him, thinking that gang members don't deserve rehabilitation. They don't deserve a second chance. They aren't worthy of ministry. He deals with this all the time, and I want to read to you what he wrote in his book, Barking at the Choir. Judgment creates the distance that moves us away from each other. We must try and learn to drop the burden of our own judgments, reconciling that what the mind wants to separate, the heart should bring together. We should try to drop the burden of our own judgments, that we can reconcile what the mind wants to separate, the heart should bring together. This morning, I am concluding the sermon series, Travel Lighter. All this month, we've been talking about all the people ready to get out and travel again. Everybody's stayed put for a year, and now everybody's ready to get out. So this sermon series has dealt with traveling through life and how often we carry too much baggage. How often, if we will just remove the anger, the fear, the prejudice from our lives, we find it so much better to travel that way, to go through life without carrying all that weight. This morning's scripture passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew, and it includes the famous phrase of Jesus saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We've all been comforted by that phrase, and we've all probably put our own interpretation on it. We all need rest. But what was Jesus meaning? What did Jesus mean when he said the people were heavy laden? And why did Jesus think that they needed rest? To understand that, you really have to take 
the whole story in its context, and it really takes up the majority of the chapter. When you go back to the beginning of the chapter, you find that John the Baptist is in prison. And he sends word through messengers to go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one, the Messiah, or should we look for someone else? Now, it's understandable that John the Baptist would have these kind of doubts, that he would need reassurance. Prison was something that you rarely survived in those days. It was a dungeon. And John knew that his death was imminent. It's understandable for him to start to question and wonder if his life's work mattered. If he had pointed people to the right one, the Messiah. And so the messengers got to Jesus and Jesus told them, go and tell John what you see and hear, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, that lepers are cleansed and the deaf receive their hearing, the dead are raised to life and good news is preached to the poor. Now this is poignant because Jesus is using language from the prophet Isaiah and John would have been very familiar with it. In fact, this language links the ministry of John the Baptist, who was to go before the Messiah and proclaim his coming with the ministry of Christ, the Messiah. After the messengers leave, Jesus turns to the crowd and he starts talking about John. And he said that John was more than a prophet. But then he changes his tone and he starts to point out that John the Baptist was rejected by the people, by the leaders. He said that John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and you said he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you said, behold, a glutton and a drunkard. What Jesus is doing there is pointing out uh, the standard the judgment. John the Baptist wasn't good enough because he was too strict, too austere. Jesus wasn't good enough because he wasn't strict enough. The legalism, the judgmentalism of that day of the religious leaders and the people who just followed along was oppressive. And so Jesus, in the midst of that, says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus didn't want them thinking that this burdensome, judgmental legalism was the way God felt about them. Can you imagine if you're in that day and you're just a common person wanting to live life, follow God, and do the right thing, and you hear that John the Baptist isn't good enough, and you're familiar with his ministry, you know that John the Baptist baptized people and encouraged people to live righteous lives before God. And then you hear that Jesus isn't good enough, and you've seen his miracles, the way that he ministers to the outcast and to the poor, and you think to yourself, if John the Baptist and Jesus aren't good enough, what hope do I have? 
because you know all your shortcomings. And so Jesus says, come to me, you who are heavy laden. You've had all these burdens put on you, all of these standards, but God doesn't see you that way. Jesus also wants them to know that religion isn't supposed to look like that. They aren't supposed to be that critical of one another. There are three things that I want to discuss this morning that can help us to put aside the burden of our own judgments and open ourselves up to loving others and traveling lighter. First is to follow the lead of Christ. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, often when we think about a yoke, we have the imagery of two oxen yoked together plowing through a field. Now, that image is really helpful if you're thinking about proximity, because they're yoked together where one goes, they go together. But it's not helpful if you're thinking of workload. If you think that Jesus is putting the yoke on us, it's us and Jesus, and we take half the workload and Jesus takes the other half, that is not what Jesus means. I mean, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It reminds me of a vacation that uh, Chris and I took with Hannah when she was a young girl. Brooks was not born yet. Hannah was just about five years old, and we went to Red River, New Mexico. We were walking around town, and we came across one of those places that rented Surrey bicycles. Uh, you know what they are? They're carts, basically, and there's two rows of seats, and there are places for four people to pedal, kind of bicycle pedals, and that's what propels the cart forward. They're probably wonderful if you have four evenly matched adults <laughs> propelling and pedaling. But we had two adults in the mountains. It was 8,700 feet above sea level, and we weren't yet acclimated to the altitude. And we had a five-year-old. It wasn't all that much fun, except for the five-year-old. She had a great time. She would pedal every now and then, but mostly she was along for the ride. She was with her parents, and she was just taken in the sight. She went wherever we steered, and she loved it. When Jesus says that we are yoked to him, it's kind of like being a five-year-old on a Surrey bicycle with Jesus pedaling. We're basically along for the ride, and that's what Jesus intends. Jesus is the one to make it go forward, to lead us and steer and guide us where we should go. It's the proximity that counts, the fact that we're with Jesus. That's the point of being yoked to him. And when we're yoked with him, we'll find that we're less judgmental because we can learn from him. And we will start to see things, to see people as Jesus sees them. We learned a lot about that on that same vacation. Chris and I had been planning to go to Red River for a long time, and I was in charge of lodging. And so I had been looking online for quite some time, and I finally found what I thought was the perfect place. It was a cabin 
and it was right by the river at the base of the mountains. And it was part of this large property that had lots of places to rent, lots of cabins. It had motel rooms. It had RV sites. And in the middle, it had this fishing pond that we could fish from. And it had lots of pictures of the property, how beautiful it was. Um, it really didn't have any pictures of the inside of the cabin. And it did describe the cabin as rustic. I thought that meant, because this cabin in particular was a little set apart in the pine woods, and so I thought that meant rustic. Well, the day finally came, and we made the long drive, and we arrived at the property. Chris went in and checked us in, and they told him that we would be the last people staying in that cabin. They had plans to tear it down and put up showers for the RVs. I thought that made it even more special, that we were the last ones to kind of close out that cabin until I walked in the cabin and found out what they meant by rustic. I walked in the bedroom, and the mattress on the bed was visibly lumpy, and it looked like it had been hand-stuffed. I mean, there were weird lumps all over it. The bedding looked clean, kind of, because the lighting in there was dingy. There was only a single bare light bulb hanging down from a wire above the bed. In the bathroom, the faucet only produced this brownish-red water, unless you let it run for several minutes. And the sink had been rusted out, and so was the bottom of the shower stall. The place did have a table and a couple chairs to sit, and the only other seating was this bright orange plastic couch. And I was just beside myself. We had planned and looked forward to this trip for so long, and it was so wrong. It was so rustic. I just started apologizing to Chris, and he said, you know, there's no need for you to apologize. And he tried to reassure me that it wasn't that bad. As he continued to laugh at evidence at how bad it really was, and I just, I was so upset. But just about that time, Hannah, who had been playing out on the porch, comes running in, and she does a grand tour of this little cabin. And then she comes back to the living room, and she throws her hands up in the air, and she says, Mom, Dad, I love this place. <laughs> and Chris and I realized that she was seeing with different eyes. When we yoke ourselves to Christ, we learn from him. We become less judgmental because we are able to see people through his eyes. Are you yoked to Christ? Are you learning from him? Ask yourself from time to time when you feel yourself starting to get a little judgmental, a little critical of someone or a group of people, and you're kind of getting in little digs, ask yourself what Jesus would think of them. And better yet, ask Jesus. Ask Jesus what he thinks of that person, and chances are Jesus will, I love that person. And that's what we're called to do as well. Second, 
we should become stone catchers because it's really good for our soul. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and find rest for your soul. Now, when we start to attack others and say bad things about others, be critical or judgmental, it doesn't help us sleep better at night. Many times we are judgmental because we don't want others to judge us. And so we want to take the attention off us. We know our shortcomings. And so we'd rather point out the shortcomings of someone else. In the Gospel of John, there's a, a woman that's brought to Jesus who is accused of adultery. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees demand that she be stoned to death according to the law of Moses. And the scripture says that Jesus bent down and he started to write in the ground. And then he looked up and he said, He who is without sin cast the first stone. Then he proceeded to write again in the ground. Well, scholars have argued back and forth, what was Jesus writing? Some have said that he was writing different types of sins. Others went so far as to suggest that he was writing the specific sins of the scribes and the Pharisees who were standing around him. But maybe he was quoting something from the Hebrew Testament, the Old Testament, about mercy. Or maybe he looked around and saw all these scribes with their rocks and stones that they want to use against this woman. And he wrote, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. But we don't know what he wrote. It isn't the point of that scripture. If it was, the author would have told us. What we know is what Jesus said. He who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, all of them who had been her accusers walked away because they were very aware of their own sins. Haven't you known people who always seem ready to cast stones at others? Maybe they're angry, they have a chip on their shoulder, and you just want to steer clear of their aim You've also probably known people who are a little bit more subtle and quiet, but they kind of, once you, you know, get to know them a little bit more, there's a little bit of venom behind the smile. And maybe it's us. There are times that we cast stones at others, and we forget these words. He who is without sin cast the first stone. Sometimes we do it because we're angry and frustrated and fed up and and sometimes we do it without even thinking. But carrying the weight of all those rocks and stones in our hearts weighs us down. It's not meant to be like that. We need to clear those out to have room for loving. Last week I told you about the book Just Mercy, written by Brian Stevenson. They made a movie out of it, and the movie's wonderful, but it only captures a portion of the book, so I really recommend uh, reading the book. One chapter in the book deals with the case of Joshua Carter. Joshua Carter was 16 years old in the early 60s. He's African-American in Louisiana, 
and was accused of rape. They were able to convict him quickly and sentenced him to death. But the confession he gave that brought about the conviction was because he was beaten. And he was beaten so brutally, so severely, that the Louisiana Supreme Court in 1965 overturned his conviction. Instead, he was given life sentence without parole. Throughout the years, he served his prison sentence in Angola prison, and the conditions there were terrible. In the 1990s, he developed glaucoma in both his eyes and lost his eyesight because they didn't provide medical treatment. But in May of 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling stating that sentencing a juvenile to life without parole for a non-homicide crime was unconstitutional. And so Brian Stevenson set out to work on getting Joshua resentenced uh, because he'd already served almost 50 years by that time and that would allow him to be released. It would take several months, but finally, by December of 2010, the judge approved the motion, and he would be set free that night. He would be set free in time to go home and celebrate Christmas with his seven brothers and his mother, who was in her 90s and had promised him she would stay alive uh, until he was released. But after the verdict, there was great celebration, and finally, everybody left the courtroom, and Brian was hanging around in the hallway. He needed to wait for some final paperwork that was necessary for the release. And he noticed that while everybody else was gone, there was one elderly woman at the end of the hallway. And he thought that he had seen her before, and probably she was Joshua's family. Well, he saw the woman and she waved him over, and so he went to see her, and she said, I'm tired and I'm not going to get up, so I need you to lean down so I can give you a hug. Brian thought, okay, and gave her, uh, she gave him a big hug, and then she patted the bench beside her, and she said, sit down, I, I want to talk with you. And she told him that she was there to, to help and be there for anyone who was in need, need of a hug or needing someone to lean on. And Brian told her, well, that's really kind of you. And she said, no, it's what I'm supposed to do. And so I do it. And then she began to explain her story. Fifteen years earlier, her grandson had been murdered. He was killed by a group of, of boys. And she loved her grandson, and so she grieved and grieved and she came to the trial every day, and at the end, they sentenced those boys uh, to a life sentence. She said, I thought it would make me feel better, but it made me feel worse. And so after the trial, everybody left. I sat there, and I just cried and cried. And this lady came up to me. I didn't know her, but she came up and gave me a hug. And she asked if I was part of the family of the boys who had just been sentenced. And I said, no, I'm family of the boy they killed. And so this lady sat down with me, and she sat with me for over an hour. I never knew her, 
Never found out her name, but she made a difference in my life. And so after about a year, I was trying to decide what to do with my life, and I thought, I'm just going to come down here because there's so much pain in this place. Initially, I came to be of help to the victims, those who had lost somebody. But then I realized that most of the grieving here was done by family members of parents or children who were being sentenced. And so I decided to just be here for anyone in need, to offer a hug or cry with them. I want to read to you how Brian Stevenson writes it in his book. All these young children being sent to prison forever, all this grief and violence, people being thrown away like they're not even human, people shouting at each other, shooting each other, hurting each other like they don't care. I don't know, it's a lot of pain. I decided that I was supposed to be here to catch some of the stones that people throw at each other. She found healing because she removed the burden of judgment from her heart. She decided to be a stone catcher, that while others were busy casting stones back and forth, she would try to catch some of them and bring a little bit of healing. We are called to be stone catchers, to bring peace in this divided world, to bring people together. That means we have to lay judgment aside. There's no room in our lives for it. We need to open ourselves up so that we can love and not judge, not criticize, not bring people down, either in our spoken words or our social media posts. We are called to be stone catchers. And so as you go through life, take time at different moments to ask yourself, are you more of a stone caster? Are you throwing stones more than you're catching them? Take the yoke of Jesus upon you, and you'll find rest for your soul. And third, make room for love. Jesus said that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. A life where we're not judging and criticizing one another, where we're not arguing all the time, is a better life. It's easier and lighter and freer to love rather than criticize. Now, when Jesus said that his yoke was easy and the burden light, he wasn't meaning that life suddenly became easier. Life still can be really challenging and difficult. But living life yoked to Christ is easier. For Father Greg Boyle, in his ministry with Homeboy Industries, it doesn't make life easy. Loving the gang members that he deals with makes it really hard because he has performed over 220 funeral services for young adults killed by gang violence. These are people he's known from their childhood because he's served so long in that ministry. 
He's seen the cycle of addiction and recovery where people, he can finally encourage them to go to rehab and they get clean, but then they come home to abuse and poverty and despair and they turn back to alcohol and drugs. He's seen his hope for them dashed many different times, but he's also seen that loving them and not judging is a far better way to live. He's seen the power of love, how it conquers the hatred and the prejudice. In his book, he writes about two sworn enemies, Manny and Lorenzo. They were from rival gangs, and so it didn't matter whether or not there were any real reasons to dislike each other. They were from rival gangs, and so that made them sworn enemies. But then they both came to Homeboy, and they started working in the bakery together. And the spirit of community and mercy and charity that's fostered there, they were able to kind of make room for loving each other. And they developed this connection, this friendship. Well, one afternoon, Lorenzo bumped into Father Gregory, and he said, man, I have to tell you what happened to me this weekend. He said, my car broke down, and it was the middle of nowhere. I couldn't walk anywhere, so I started calling some of my friends. Now, I know you won't like this, Father, but I called some of my gang members. And so I want to read to you how it was written in the book. This is what Lorenzo said. First one says, hey, I'm in the middle of something. I can't go. Next one, same thing. Over and over, I'm really busy, sorry. <clears throat> I called five of them and all said no. I didn't know what to do. So I can't believe this myself. I called Manny. We worked together in the bakery. And I don't have to tell you, but there is no one in the bakery who is a greater enemy of mine than Manny. No one. But I had his number, so I called him. And you want to know what my worst enemy said to me when I called him? He said, on my way. When we will remove the burden of being judgmental, being critical, we find we have room to love others. In fact, Father Greg wrote this, dropping this enormous inner burden of judgment allows us to make of ourselves what God wants the world to ultimately be, people who stand in awe. Judgment, after all, takes up the room you need for loving. Put away the judgment the cynicism, the, the desire to be critical and make room in your heart for loving others. Take the yoke of Christ upon you and find rest for your souls. Learn from him and see others through the eyes and the heart of Christ. You'll find it is a far better life by traveling lighter. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.
Amen.